Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He went down to look in and saw the linen wrapping lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their tomb, to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she went, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head, the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. May God bless the reading of the word. That's a good reading. Really good reading. I want to say thank you to all the folks who uh, joined us in baptism last week. They were our preachers and they did a brilliant job. And if you were not with us last week, if you were somewhere else, maybe visiting family, uh, then welcome back with us today. We are going uh, to talk about resurrection for the next good bit. Easter is always this really big day, and then life becomes just life again, Monday. It's sometimes hard to hold it, this moment that we are trying to live into. But we are back in it right now, and we'll be back in it Sunday after Sunday. So I'm going to ask if you would join me as we begin this morning in prayer, and then we will jump into it. Pray with me. Dear God, the words that we will share together today, may they enter into our hearts, our our very beings. Don't let them sit on the surface. Pull as close to you as you've brought yourself close to us. Help us to understand that whatever is happening in the resurrection is changing everything. And in that change, there is 
There is joy and there is also fear. Bring your world, your realm here to this one. We are really, really hungry for heaven. In Christ's name, amen. Corey, are our kids in the room? No, they're gone. Okay, I can't tell the story if they're in the room. This is uh, not because I don't have permission for them, but they will be too emotional. This is uh, Albert Einstein, our dog, Albert Einstein, not the real Albert Einstein, just to be clear. We knew him as Albie. Now, we got Albie about a year after Corey and I got married, and he was a really good and really dumb dog at the same time. Now, if you're a cat person, you think this is true of all dogs, but Albie was was special in all kinds of ways, but he was our dog, and uh, a couple of years ago, we uh, we show up in the backyard, Albie's supposed to be running around playing, and he's not running around playing, he's just standing still, he's like 12 at the time, and his belly's all distended, and Corey and I think, this is not good, this is very bad. Um, he was old enough to where we knew if he got really, really sick, we would be having to say goodbye. So we brought the kids outside and, and they checked on Albie with us and we grabbed Albie and put him in the, in the car. And then we took off to the closest like vet ER. We had never been, I'd never been to a vet ER because Albie had been a really healthy dog. And so we get to the ER, the kids are with us, everybody's crying at this point because we don't know what's happening. And then this very, very sweet, uh, doctor comes out and she tells us that there's all kind of stuff happening inside of him and that there's really nothing that they can do. And we kind of been preparing for that reality in the like 30 minutes of waiting. And, uh, so it was the, the e- listen, if you are an ER doctor or nurse, whether for humans or not humans, well done. This is really tough work to have to sit with people in this kind of space. So they said like we can, get Albie comfortable, and then you can say goodbye. And so we got to hold our dog while he died. It was really personal, intense, intimate, really lovely. And they put him in a box and they handed him back to us because it cost a lot more money for them to do something with the body. And at this point, I'm thinking, A, he's my dog, so I'll deal with it. And B, I don't want to pay $100 for you to throw him away in a trash can. That sounds awful. And so we took the body back. And uh, we had... In the backyard, uh, in the corner, dug a hole that night. Uh, we got back pretty late, like at 9 or 10 o'clock. And so Judah was inside a mess. Um, if you know my son, he's really, uh, has a porous soul. Feels very deeply. He and Corey share that. And uh, Ruthie is like... She has to feel her emotions out on the surface. So she gets the shovel and she comes and meets me out in the yard. And she's like, we're going to dig this hole. And so we dig and dig and dig. And it is, it is this release moment of everything that I had been feeling. Because this is my first dog, my only animal. And I really love Albie. And so we dig and we dig and uh, wrap him up in his favorite blanket and lay him in the ground and cover him up and all cry and then we go inside and we try and sort of sit with what's happened. Now, uh, some of you have lost pets. Some of you have lost pets recently. And you know what all of this feels like. A day later, uh, we did what any good family would do. We had a funeral for the dog. Uh, 
and again. There are all of these rituals that we have leaned into over time, and we sort of say that they are just really for humans, uh, for, for people, but there's all of this grief that we had to process, and and burying the body and then sitting with the body and saying prayers and, and blessings and laying flowers, it all felt right in the moment. And we even made a cross with an A on it. Partly because there is this stubborn belief that I have and that my family shares that Jesus loves these as well. When I was in college, there was a a young woman about my age, and she had a dog who died. And she asked our minister, like, what's going on here? What is, what happens next? Is my dog just gone forever? Is, if there's this image of heaven that we all kind of carry around with us, and we borrow, like, bits and pieces from the Bible, and bits and pieces from Hollywood, and then a little bit from, from, like, Dante, and we put it all together into this really confusing picture of something. And so she's asking her minister, like, what, how does my dead dog fit into this image that I've been given of what happens next? And he was like, the dog's done. Like, you're never going to see the dog again. Jesus doesn't care about the The dog's gone. And whatever's going to happen to you and your soul eternally has nothing to do with that creature. And so, of course, like, she'd already weeped and weeped about the dog dying. And now she had to weep and weep about this separation being forever. So here's the question I want to start with today. What does Jesus have to do with Albie? Not a question you thought you would have to think about today. But here we are. Or we could ask it another way. What does heaven have to do with Albie? Now, now Albie is just this little uh, way in, a vehicle to talk about what are the implications for resurrection, for what Jesus does in the cross, in the grave, and in new life. And how far-reaching are the effects of resurrection? That's what we celebrate at Easter. That somehow, whatever is happening, everything is different. It's like the biggest day of the church calendar. And, and yet, how does it apply to the rest of life? It isn't just our souls. Now, we're going to spend weeks and weeks talking about this. Because there are all of these different angles we're going to have to take. We're going to talk about heaven and earth about dualism, about Plato, about Jesus, about bodies, about creation, creatures, ecology, the temple, the temple, the temple. Whatever has happened in resurrection, it it does change everything. I spent a lot of my life, and I've mentioned this before, uh, with this, like if the Christian life is a, is a game, then the way that you win is by getting to go to heaven. It's like the finish line for Christians. And so if you just run fast enough, well enough, righteous enough, then at some point you'll like break the tape and you'll be done. You did it. You can stop trying. You've made it to heaven. And, and everybody that you would kind of meet with and worship and everybody that you would talk to or you would witness to it was all to sort of get them on the same race toward the same goal, which is getting all of us to heaven. And so it's just sort of like upward gaze all the time because that's where heaven is, right up. And that's where we're headed. 
That seems to be like the dominant story that I absorbed over time. That the goal of the Christian life is to get our souls from here to there. And as best as we can while our souls are here to keep them pure from everything that could pollute them in this here and now. The problem with that is that is actually not what the Bible says. The Bible tells a very consistent but very different story from that one, which is that God is always moving toward us. When we talk about heaven, and we're going to get into this a lot more in in later weeks, we are not necessarily talking about a place where we all go. We are talking about a reality that God inhabits and then brings that reality into this one. Heaven is wherever God's will is done. Heaven is wherever God's dream for the world is happening. And so when we say things in the Lord's Prayer like, as in heaven, so also on earth, it is calling that larger story of God always moving toward us into the here and now. Over and over and over again. We'll keep talking about it. But when we talk today about heaven, we're talking a little bit about this fancy word called eschatology. Which is, you don't even need to know the word, like forget I ever said it. It basically just means where things are headed, or the end of all things. Now normally when we talk about eschatology, we're talking about revelation and the rapture and really like intense literature that sold a whole bunch of copies, left behind kind of thing. That's what we think about when we think about the end times. But where you think things are going will dictate the way you live now. Ethics, the way that we live, the way that we inhabit this realm, this world, is deeply influenced by where we think things are going. So if you think your marriage is falling apart and it's not able to be saved, chances are you're going to act a little bit different than if you think this thing, you are in it. You are in it. If you find out that you are terminally ill, your next week's plans are going to change a little bit. If you believe that this whole world is destined for fire and destruction then that will set up some priorities for the way you live in the here and now. If you believe that the body is a shell that inhabits or traps the soul and the goal is to get free of this body, then you will treat this body a certain way. How we live is formed by where things are headed or where we believe that things are headed. So it would be wise of us to spend some time together Imagining with scripture, with Jesus, with God, where things are headed. And the resurrection is like a really big flashing sign about where things are headed. Okay. So that's like the primer. That's the introduction. Let's stop. Let's take a breath. You do not have to absorb all of that right now. We are going to circle around and circle around. In our house, this this new home that we inhabit now, for some reason, the way that they wired it, it is like every, there are these dome lights in the, in the kitchen, for instance, and there are five of them. You would think that they would all be on the same switch, but they are not. Every little light is on its own switch, all on a different wall. So it takes a solid three minutes to turn the lights on in the kitchen. That's what this teaching is going to be like. Each week is like turning on one more light on this really big picture about what God is up to in resurrection. And so if it still feels a little dim week to week, hold that space. Sit with it. Some of that ambiguity is good for us. Trust that we will continue to fill out the picture over time together. Okay. Now, grab your Bibles if you've got one. We are going to be in John's gospel today. James, thank you for that reading. 
You can turn to John 20, which is what we just heard together. John does an interesting thing. I have certain convictions about the ways that we should be reading scripture together. And John highlights one that is is, uh, super important, which is that the Bible is interpreted inside of itself. John is in conversation with particularly the book of Genesis. And so as you read John's gospel, he's telling this new story in an old way. It helps to steep yourself in the entirety of scripture so that when these authors step up and hand you something, you know where this might have come from, what they're echoing and what they're telling us. The first line, on the early, on the first day of the week while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the tomb. Early on the first day of the week while it was still dark. I'm going to try and make what is a little bit implicit here in John's gospel explicit over the next few minutes. So bear with me. And if you already know where we're going, grab your note sheet and write down ahead of time where this is headed. When John tells the story about resurrection, he uses an old story. He uses the first story. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then a little bit later, and darkness was over the face of the deep. When they get to the tomb that morning, the way that John tells it, is the way that the writer of Genesis tells it at the beginning. Something new is happening in creation. Bereshit Baralim. In the beginning, God created. Whatever the beginning is. At the beginning of all things, God does this thing. Speaks it into existence. And then this whole world appears. Through God's breath and voice and language. And so when the writer of John's gospel is trying to tell about this new thing that God is doing. He borrows this story retells Genesis. This is how John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the word. It's hard to miss if you know the story that's being told. John is going to begin to tell the story of some kind of creation. In the beginning was the word. And the word for word is the word logos. If you keep reading, the word was with God and the word was God and was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life and the life was the light of all people and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. If you keep reading down, it goes into a little bit more detail. And the word became flesh and logos became sarks and tabernacled among us, pitched a tent among us. Peterson says, moved into the neighborhood. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the father's only son, full of grace and truth. So whatever John is doing in John's gospel, he's going to tell it to us in a way that sounds like those early Genesis stories of creation. So let's start moving through John's gospel together. And the way that we're going to do this is looking at these miracles or these signs. The reason that they that Jesus performs these miracles or signs, it says in there, so that you might see God's glory. So that the things that have been hidden will be revealed. So that you will understand what's happening. And when you see the sign and you interpret the sign correctly, then you might find yourself believing the news that God is back 
in this really unique way called Jesus the Christ. So we're going to flip a little bit, but it will be in order. If you go to chapter two, we get to this story. I love that this is the first miracle in the Bible. The wedding at Cana. There was a problem at the wedding. There wasn't enough wine. By the way, there's a Vons that went, is going out of business up the street from our house. And so they put like everything on sale, like deep, deep discounts, 50%, 75% off. So I went one day to go see what was there. And I mean, people had like two grocery carts full of wine. And one person I met, they said that they had a wedding. And so they were getting ready because that's what you do. When you have a wedding, you have a party, you get all of the best kinds of drinks so that everybody shows up and has this great time. It wasn't super different in Jesus' day. So they show up at this wedding and there's not enough wine. They run out and Jesus has to help out with the situation. And Jesus' mother comes over and says, like, we've got a problem. We don't have enough wine. And Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? What am I? My time has not come. My time has not come yet. Anyway, changes the water into wine, which is a fun parlor trick. And it says in chapter 2, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, to reveal, to make known his glory. And his disciples believed in him. There it is. There is a sign. There is this revealing of glory. And then it follows with belief. And then there is this kind of first sign, which would imply that there is a next sign. And so we keep reading. If you go to chapter four, there is this nobleman, this official son who is sick. Like he's got a fever, but he's almost dead. Jesus saves him because that's what Jesus does. And it says at the end in verse 54 of chapter four. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. There is this pattern or this rhythm that the writer is creating. There is this first sign and now there is this second sign. And he started off the story in this creation model. In the beginning was the word. If we know our Bible, we should expect probably some kind of pattern of seven because that's how long it takes to create and complete a thing. And sure enough, there are different ways you can count this. And it's a pretty fun little project. So I'm going to do it for you. If you keep reading John's gospel, there are these miracles or these signs that show up. So you've got the first one, water into, I assume it's Pinot Noir. I don't know. Water into wine. The second one we just read, the nobleman's fever breaks. Then there is a a third sign. It's the the man who's at the pool. Jesus heals him. Then there's the multitude who's fed salmon and sourdough. Again, I'm making assumptions here. It's based on what I would probably want if I were there. Some salmon, sourdough. It's just as loaves and fishes. And that is the fourth sign. Fifth sign is the man who's blind. Jesus spits in the mud, puts the mud on his eyes. And then the man can see. And then there is the sixth, which is this unexpected situation where Jesus' very close friend, Lazarus, is dead. Now, dead is done. 
I guess blind does not mean always blind and, and unable to walk does not mean you'll always be unable to walk and, and water, I guess, is not always water. But if we know anything, we know that dead is dead. Like I wanted to dig up Albie's bones and bring them here to California because I thought that's the thing you're supposed to do. They dug up Jacob's bones and brought them back. So why wouldn't we bring Albie here? But Corey said, no. But my guess is that Albie's still in the ground, right? Just like all of our loved ones are still somewhere where they were put. Dead stay dead. But Lazarus, something happens. There is this moment. Jesus weeps. Then Jesus makes these public pronouncements of glory and of belief. And then calls out, Lazarus, come out. And then smelly Lazarus, I'm assuming, trips out of the tomb. Like four days dead. And now he's out. So that's six. At this point, we should be wondering what is going to finish the pattern. What will be the seventh sign? Because it takes seven days to create the heavens and the earth. And whatever is happening in John's gospel is this kind of creation story. And now we have a sixth pattern. What is the seventh? I'm going to lean on one scholar, N.T. Wright, who says it is the crucifixion. This doesn't feel like a sign or a miracle. It feels like the death of all miracles and all signs. But Jesus says this thing in John's gospel at the very end, the last thing that Jesus says before Jesus dies. It is finished. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus has been giving these hints that he's going to be lifted up. And when he is lifted up, that that will be the revealing of glory. And the disciples don't quite get what Jesus means. I'm going to be lifted up. You don't quite understand what this means, but I'm going to be lifted up. And when I am, that will be the moment of revelation, of glory, and of honor. It's going to be hard to see because it's going to sure look like defeat and shame. And so sure enough, when Jesus is on the cross, while no one else gets what's happening, Jesus and the Father have been talking. And Jesus speaks the language from the end of Genesis. It is finished. The Greek, tetelestai, from the word telos, which means the end or, or the completion of a thing. Something has come to fruition. Tie a bow around it, it's done. This is the word in Hebrew. Chala. I'll read it for you. God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all their multitude. On the seventh day God finished the work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And we are done. Jesus has stepped into this ancient creation pattern, has seen it through to the end, and has brought all of history to this climax, to this completion moment. It is finished. So the curtain draws, the music turns down, the lights go low, and everybody goes home. And that's where we were sitting for quite a while during the season of Lent. I want to read for you a retelling of this moment 
moving up to this seventh sign, this completion moment, and what it might have felt like to sit in that place, to feel the finality of it, the doneness of it. This is a reading, a retelling of that Friday to Saturday to Sunday from a book called Unapologetic by Francis Spufford. It's a really good but also really intense book, and there's a lot of cursing in it. But it's also a book about Jesus. So, you know, you never know. This section does not have a lot of swear words. It has zero. All right. Let me do this. I ask you to take a breath. Find a center. And hear these words. He cannot do anything deliberate now. The strain of his whole weight on his outstretched arms hurts too much. The pain fills him up, displaces thought as much for him as it has for everyone else who has been struck to one of these horrible contrivances. For anyone else who dies in pain from any of the world's grim arsenal of possibilities. And yet he goes on taking in. It's not what he does, it's what he is. He is all open door to sorrow, suffering, guilt, despair, horror, everything that cannot be escaped. And he does not even try to escape it. He turns to meet it and claims it all as his own. This is mine now, he is saying. And he embraces it with all that's left of him. Every dark act, every dripping memory, as if it were something precious. As if it were itself the loved child tottering homeward on the road. But there is so much of it. So many injured children, so many locked rooms, so much lonely anger, so many bombs in public places, so much vicious zeal, so many bored teenagers at roadblocks, so many drunk girls at parties, someone thought they could have a little fun with, so many jokes that go too far, so much ruining greed, so much sick ingenuity, so much burned skin. The world, he claims, it claims him. It burns and it stings, it splinters and gouges, it locks him round and drags him down. All day long, the next day, the city is quiet. The air above the city lacks the usual thousand little trails of smoke from cook fires. Hymns rise from the temple. Families are indoors. The soldiers are back in barracks. The chief priest grows hoarse with singing. The governor plays chess with his secretary and dictates letters. The free bread the temple distributes to the poor has gone stale by midday, but tastes all right, dripped in water or broth. Death has interrupted life only as much as it always does. We die one at a time and disappear, but the life of the living, it continues. The earth turns. The sun makes its way toward the western horizon, no slower or faster than it usually does. Early Sunday morning. One of the friends comes back with rags and a jug of water and a box of grave spices that are supposed to cut down the smell. She's braced for the task. But when she comes to the grave, she finds that the linens have been thrown into the corner and the body is gone. Evidently, anonymous burial is not quite anonymous enough after all. She sits outside in the early sun. The insects have woken up here at the edge of the desert and the bee is nosing about in a lily-like silk thinly tucked over itself, but much more perishable. It won't last long. She takes no notice of the feet that appear at the edge of her vision. That's enough for now, she thinks. That's more than enough. 
don't be afraid, Yeshua says. Don't be afraid, says Jesus. Far more can be mended than you know. She is weeping. And the executee helps her to stand up. On the first day of the week, while it was still dark, I can't imagine what Mary was thinking when she walked to the tomb. Everything had already died for her. All of her future, all of her hope, it had been buried in the ground. So when she shows up to the tomb, even when she finds it empty, that is not for her good news. It's just one more bit of trouble on top of trouble. Resurrection happens, but she doesn't even know. The disciples, they come and they see them to and they go back home. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. By the way, if two angels speak to you, this is a pretty chill Mary after the fact. Like just answering back as though nothing is happening. Maybe they didn't look like angels. They've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing it to be a gardener. She said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And there it is. Supposing him to be a gardener. Whatever Jesus does on the cross claims that it is finished. There's something new that is happening on this eighth day. Christians for a long time have claimed this day, this Sunday of resurrection as the eighth day of creation. Or the first day of new creation. Everything is new again. This is the reality that we inhabit right now. It's the one we are going to spend the next several weeks digging into. That Jesus has made all things new. Not just that Jesus has found some special tunnel that we might sneak in to heaven for our souls. But that Jesus has brought here... The reign and rule of God is renewing all things. The rest of the New Testament grapples with the reality of resurrection, the trouble of resurrection, the problem that Jesus is risen from the dead, but the world still looks like the world. When God speaks in Genesis, matter responds. It comes together, it forms, it sings, it speaks of goodness from the creator. And then God says, it is good, it is good, it is very, very, very good.
We know the story of how things fall off the tracks, about how relationships fizzle out, about how everything seems to be separated from everything that matters. And that separation, that sin, it rips the body of God apart. But as one early church father says, what God assumes God redeems. Or God heals, even death. So we, you, me, are called to see this new world that is here right now. God is doing a new thing. As people of the resurrection, this is our core belief. That in the life, death, and new life of Jesus, all things are being made new. This is great news. It will take us some time to uncover all of the ways that this is Great news. But no longer do we have to be afraid. The world is tricky and full of despair. All kinds of reasons to not believe that this is true. For a long time, humanity had tried all different ways that they thought were possible to fix the world. And at some point, God tries the impossible. Now we are heirs of this future. So if you are craving heaven, and you feel that it is now, that it is here, that it is available, as you leave this space today with one another, Feel what has been healed already. What has been made good and whole and complete. May you especially be signs of this new world that God has made. People made whole. I ask if you would pray with me as we move forward in this teaching together. God, what do we have to believe about this for it to be true? What do we have to understand about resurrection for it to feel in our bones? Like everything is different. I don't know. But I do feel. Like something is stirring. I feel you, God, calling us to trust. That you have made all things new. That you have 
reconciled, everything that is broken, I feel like I don't have to be afraid. Not even of death. We want God this day to know not just with our heads, but with all of ourselves. That you are holy and that you are strong enough to put this world right. May it start with us, each of us in this family called the church. May we no longer try and run or escape this creation you have called good. May we honor our bodies and the bodies of those around us. Forgive us when we desecrate one another, when we desecrate the world. When you tell us that everything belongs to you because it all comes from you. God, thank you for resurrection. Thank you that death does not win. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.